Welcome to the Inspired Wild Podcast. I'm Trevin Stolzfus, and I am here in the office with Matt Jackson, uh, a good buddy. We've known each other for almost 20 years now. It's a long time. The crazy thing about Matt and I is when I first moved here, uh, let, let me even go, let, let, let me lay some groundwork first before I talk about when we met. Matt and I are working together. He is the editor of the Colorado Bow Hunting Magazine, uh, the official magazine of bow hunters for bow hunters since 1969 for the CBA, the Colorado Bow Hunters Association. And Matt um, got me on board to step up and help him with the website and help him with the CBA magazine. Uh, so I am my official title is art director and janitor. Um, and uh, pretty much whatever else needs to, I, we, we, we wear a lot of hats, but that's the premise of this. And we're actually in this office, in my office, Thursday night is our standing meeting where it's a magazine meeting and we're literally building uh, the CBA magazine. We're working on the uh, May, June issue right now. Um, but that's what brought this about, about really because uh, I had uh, just did a, a podcast with Kafaru uh, with Aaron and, and Frank, and uh, we were talking about CBA and some of the stuff that we've got going. And of course, they're doing the Kafaru gear corner, so that's a great way for us to get that laid down, ask them questions, and then of course we transcribe it and put it in the magazine. So there's a little ground groundwork, but I moved from New Mexico to Colorado in 2001. And in 2002, 2003 maybe? Anyway, I met it was two, 2002. 2002. Yeah. I met Matt Jackson and Craig Steinhauer at the local Fort Collins Archery Association League Wednesday Night Shoots, which is about to start up in May again. Um, and it's funny, when I moved here, I didn't know a lot of people. I, I, I met most of the bow hunters through the CBA, to be honest. I got involved in the CBA right away and I met most of those. But to have guys that you meet every Wednesday and it's just like golfing. You know, you got your golfing buddies. If you're a golfer, there's guys you like to golf with, there's guys you don't like to golf with. Like, I like to shoot with guys that, that make it difficult. There's competition. Um, so you wanna compete against each other, but there's also fun. And, you know, you got the guy that will talk in your backswing, right? Trying to get you off your game. Well, it's kind of the same thing in archery, 3D archery. So from the start, we were really all, we kicked it off as friends, but but then we were competitive. Craig, you know, Craig would always bring cigars. Mm -hmm. And that's how we keep the mosquitoes away. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just shot for years. And then all of a sudden... Matt disappeared, and you you had a business. You were building your business, and you really dedicated the last fifteen years. Is that honest? I mean, basically, I mean, you're yeah. you're you're at a point Has now where you well, maybe not that long, but I feel like you kind of stepped away for at least twelve years. I think you're right. I think it was fifteen years. You know, those are really good memories for me. Because, uh, like you, I like the realistic, you know, hardcore type of atmosphere with people that are really genuinely into what I'm into. And one of the things that I really loved about shooting in that Fort Collins Archery League with you 15 years ago, and the reason why I can still remember it, is because not only did we compete against each other, but they were like realistic shots. You right. know, take a knee, turn to your right, you know, mm -hmm. twist away that's not natural or shoot through a little window we we yeah. didn't always just stand at the stake because right. um that just wasn't realistic so um and sometimes they would set the shots up like that too mm -hmm. but you know you get out there and there's a 25 yard shot and you're standing there and i know we'd, we'd say hey okay it's kind of like horse you know okay can you make this shot mm -hmm. and then you know we keep score i don't know if we ever turned our scorecards in but i know that we sure knew amongst each other <laughs> who won we sure did so that was fun <laughs> and uh, it, Explain a little bit about what it is that you stepped away to do because you never lost the love for bow hunting and you've continued to bow hunt, mainly solo bow hunting, backcountry mm -hmm. stuff. But 
go into kind of lay the groundwork of of where you went and why what you learned from that time away you're bringing that knowledge back and you're really laying some super foundational um, principles and practices that are is helping the CBA be renewed if, mm. if that makes sense so in 2004 uh, uh, I remember pretty vividly that uh, very privately, I got sideways with just another member in the club, and I didn't want to deal with it. You know, I was just as happy as shooting in the morning at 5 a.m. when I could take my dog, not see anybody, and run and do push-ups and shoot my bow. Yeah. I really enjoy it. And, of course, I miss the camaraderie, but one of the things that I really don't like is conflict. I don't like personal conflict with people. It's just something that's of no value to me, and so I'd rather kind of avoid it. And so I started shooting on my own, and... And um, I never gave up hunting. I never left hunting. I never left my my passion for shooting archery and bow hunting. Never left. It is the most engaging, adventurous, challenging thing I've ever done in my life. And all of the lessons that I learned in life from athletics, competing at a high level through college, and having a lot of success in other outdoor adventures, uh, all my life set the stage for me to want to be a Colorado bow hunter. Mm -hmm. It's truly the ultimate. If you want to push yourself and backpack bow hunt and get uncomfortable, that's what's never left me. Because in my world, I, 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 I got interested in 2004 in understanding more about money and finance and insurance because I realized when I came up in, in construction, um, looking, you know, 40 years down the road, many of the people that I was working with um, were struggling financially or maybe with other things in their life. And it wasn't something that I saw was super healthy with just the people that were around me. Certainly, there's a lot more successful people that are happy doing that around the country. That's just in my small circle. And it opened my eyes. And so... Um, I struggled for a really long time because I'm an outdoorsman <laughs> by heart, by nature, um, big animal lover, but here I am stepping into the world of finance. And <laughs> I recently, now almost 20 years in the business, um, because I first got licensed in 2000 uh, as an insurance producer in Colorado, that uh, recently learned that financial advisors rank lower under admiration by the public than a used car salesman. Really? <laughs> yes, it's true. And um, and I embrace it because one of the things that keeps me involved in my industry is because I have a sense of justice and I really don't like some of the things that my industry does to working people every day. Right. And so since I've been licensed as an insurance producer and now securities licensed since 2010, I've been a licensed fiduciary where by law I have learned how, what it means to really put other people's interests ahead of mine. And so in 2004, um, I started a small insurance practice here in Colorado, uh, helping seniors um, better plan for long-term care, leaving legacies to their families. And I really cut my teeth um, helping people preserve their legacy for their families. And I had a lot of reps at plate, meaning I'm, I met with a lot of people. And so I really got to, in my opinion, see like the true fabric of what was good in America and what was bad. And it was a long, painful process for me to stay engaged in the financial world, insurance and, and investing world because of my love for bow hunting. I, for a long time, Trevin, had to make a conscious decision to put down my my normal everyday jeans and t-shirt to put on uh, slacks and a sport coat and a tie. And that was a tough decision because my roots are, you know, my love for the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was having a conversation with my dad one time and you know, he was kind of ribbing me about wearing a suit and all that stuff, driving a nice car and, you know, not driving a truck and stuff. 
And uh, he said, what's it like to work in the sneak pit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I thought that was a pretty honest way to describe some of that. Um, which is why, again, I've stayed in my industry because the people that I'm involved with and have been since I've been in the industry, they're what I would call white hats. You know, they really want to protect the public. They're innovating for the public. Um, and so from 2004 to 2008, I had a really good run of helping a lot of people and received a lot of industry accolades for the work that I did. Uh, I experienced a lot of discrimination for my age. The average age of my client was 65 around that time of year, or 2004 to 2008. And like I was like 33, I think, or something like that, give or take some years. And I remember people wouldn't do business with me because they said they had grandkids or kids my age, mm-hmm. you know, even though I was really good at what I did. But I take all that stuff and it really made me a good professional because through that time I got to coordinate insurance benefits for the Colorado Bar Association, the Colorado Medical Society, the Dental Association, the Colorado Academy of Family Physicians, and like 40 other state and national associations. So I really got to work with a diverse cross section of people and working for the Colorado Bar or the Bar Association was amazing because I got thrown questions. You know, I grew up um, about 15 miles south of the border of Wisconsin in Illinois, north of Chicago. And when I was 15, I worked on a 3,500 acre grain farm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, driving combines and 8850 tractors and stuff. And here I am dealing in the financial world and having questions thrown at me like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. And instead of turning my tail and running, you know, I bit down on my mouthpiece and learned. Right. And I got better. I got embarrassed a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it made me who I am today, a very detail-oriented, very conscientious person, not only in business, but also with what we're doing with the CBA. I think it shows. And and then um, 2008, and, and I continued to hunt. Um, I shot some good animals with my bow, did some great adventures. Um, that always grounded me. I, I, you know, the end of elk season, you're counting the days to when the opener begins. Right. That never left me, man even while I was distracted. And, um, you know, then about 2009, um, talk about some tough, tough stuff for me. It's the first time I've ever talked about it publicly. Uh, we ran into some really hard times. Uh, my oldest adopted daughter was, um, having some really tough health problems. And for a long time, she was not with us. And, uh, it was a soul crushing experience for me and my wife. It was like experiencing the death of your daughter over and over and over and over and over again. And, um, the reason why I would share this, this is pretty deep stuff, but the reason why I would share this is because in times of COVID, I've met some people that are really hurting. Maybe they lost their Uh, job Mm -hmm. or their place to live or they're depressed because they can't see their family and friends and so if what I say here with my experience is tough to listen to or it's whatever but if it helps one person have the strength to say I can get through it too like that's worth it for me right and um, I learned a lot of life lessons from 2009 to today but are really tough ones um from 2009 to 2020, my wife and I, we lost 15 people, uh, buried some of my closest friends and family members. That was really tough. Experienced the loss of my daughter. Um, you know, I had every insurance known to man when she was going through her health problems. And the one thing that insurance didn't cover was the one thing that my daughter suffered from. Mm-hmm. And um, the businesses that I built from 2000 to 2009, I sold for pennies on the dollar. Mm. And I think that maybe God or the universe put it in my path. Like what's more important, uh, money or somebody's life. And so, uh, 
hunting, being outside, helped me get through that. Because it was the one place that I would go to, like, escape and feel like a real human, like, um, really appreciate what I had at home. Because I have really nice things, and I've been very fortunate from hard work to be able to afford nice things. But one of the things that I really love about bow hunting in Colorado or anywhere is when you spend a hard week in the wilderness, you come home and you appreciate the paint on your walls, the door handle on your doors, everything. The carpet on the floor, the light bulbs, the heat. The levelness of your toilet. Yes, a thousand percent. (laughs) And so while that experience from 2008 to 2020 literally broke me, I remember one of my friends, I went from being one of the um, top insurance producers in the country for my entire industry to just gone. Mm. And one of my friends... uh, on the East Coast said, hey man, I think you had a nervous breakdown. Like you couldn't even operate. You couldn't take no for an answer. Like you couldn't do anything. And we didn't even know what to do with you. Here you are like this kind of tough guy, superhuman dude that's done all these amazing things. And you couldn't even hold a conversation with people. And what I learned from that Trevin was that I was really lucky to have married the woman. that I did because like me like she's super strong she's in it for the team you know right and uh, it really made me uh, get some faith and hope restored back into humanity because there was a lot of people that didn't serve us well at all Mm -hmm. and really the whole system failed my adopted daughter and everybody and uh, that that's soul crushing when you're thinking that the system is built to help children and help families and everybody says, sorry, nope, 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 nope. Yeah. And then you give everything that you have to give and more uh, and it's still not enough. Right. Um, to be able to have somebody who will stick by your side is really powerful. I had family members that said that my wife and I would never stay married and we're stronger today. Like, hmm solid dude solid uh best decision ever made in my life was marrying my wife she's way tougher than me and she's such a good person that when i was a broke bow hunter when she met me she made my first sill nylon tent hand sewed it made my own clothes and i still use that gear today it's crazy man wow and a lot of it is because um it's her right you know Right. Super cool. I have carte blanche. I could buy anything I want. <laughs> I still wear that stuff. It's right. funny. It's also uh, maybe has something to do with you taking a piece of her with you. Because like you said, you might be there seven, eight, nine days, mm-hmm. especially on a backcountry hunt where you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, that there's that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's really that's cool. Interesting. You know, it just goes to prove, like we were talking about, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but, you know, when you don't have to have a lot of money to bow hunt like you don't have to have a lot of money to hunt or fish period i mean you might not have the the newest and latest gear but if you have the basics and you know the the most important piece of equipment you have is you Mm -hmm. and you know what's in between your ears um so that's pretty cool that that, that's that's a i think thanks for sharing that i i think there's things in life that test us that you make the decision you don't make the decision to go through them Mm. but you make the decision how to react to them and they can make you that much better or they can beat you and that's what i did i turned it around right and i had some really amazing people uh introduced to me along the way and trust me when I was coming out of that haze, you know, uh, living through that haze, 2009 to 2012, I struggled really, really hard. Um, and so anybody that's out there, you know, they're dealing with that kind of stuff. They can get through it. Every day is a new day. Here's where it gets better is that as a bow hunter, as an athlete, I'm always like, what's over the next ridge, mm-hmm. right? 
like what's the next challenge mm-hmm. like i just mastered that skill let's go next mm-hmm. right i got into bow hunting coincidentally because when i moved to colorado in 95 i rifle hunted and was a successful rifle hunter what's the next logical progression of difficulty muzzle loading i went muzzle loading was a successful muzzle loading hunter muzzle loading hunter mm-hmm. what's the next level of progression shoot a wheelie bow so I went out there and shot, you know, bow and was a successful bow hunter. And then in 2004, I tried traditional archery. Still have not killed an elk with my <laughs> traditional gear. Uh, it is the most challenging thing mm-hmm. I've ever done in my life. For sure. And um, that, that, that mentality leads me to the rebirth, you know, of myself. Um, you know, before... Uh, 2009 hit you know we're going along on a really good clip enjoying life and probably wasn't open to a whole lot of change that i have been open to since and um <laughs> it's really interesting i think not only was the decision about money put in my life about what's more important like things that really matter but i also think like my old ego and personality was just sh- crumpled up into a little newspaper ball and thrown into the trash can and I had the opportunity to reshape my life and so I went for it I got my securities licensed I got associated with some really smart people that really 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 care about their clients and do an amazing job and so over time I learned about the value of protecting people's money and just protecting and being a good steward of other people and um in the meantime, I'm looking at what's going on in the hunting world going, man, I wish I could help. There's some things going on that's trying to restrict our access. Thanks God we have organizations like the CBA here in Colorado that are doing that work when I couldn't do it mm-hmm. to to make sure that I have the opportunity when I want to. And um, so not only did I learn about being a good steward of other people's money and their lives, but also the importance of importance of helping people realize their dreams financially so during this time we were also burying a lot of people and in 2016 after a long battle my, my mother passed away in october and um i spent a lot of time with her i was really lucky i was able to fly back to wisconsin every month and spend a week or two with her every month and i remember um I would carry her uh down from our house down to her favorite pontoon boat you know she was really slight from her battle of cancer and uh man the joy she got from otherwise she wouldn't be able to get down to the boat right so i'd carry her down there and said we'd go for a ride and she's just so happy and i'm so lucky that i was able to do those those things and when she finally passed i took a little personal retreat down to mexico and uh, i'm a part of a international business networking group with people from all over the world and I went down there to kind of get a breath of fresh air and be with these really dynamic people from everywhere. Every race, every color, you name it, they're there. All sharp people bringing their best. And I met some amazing people. Uh, I met a fellow by the name of Ajit Nawalka and uh, the person who uh, helped me write my number one bestseller, Dr. Nita Bushan. And that was an amazing experience. Um, from 2015, through 2017, I had been published writing um, as a financial advisor in Forbes and Money.com and US News and World Report uh, and a bunch of others. And I thought like writing a book would be an easy task and oh, was I wrong. So when I was down there on that retreat, I just had some inspiration about helping more people regarding finance and lifestyle because not only did I settle my mother's estate, well, I didn't settle her estate. Um, did I bury her and see her, um, really, really see her the last two years of her life, what she stood for, what she loved, what she regretted, things like that. Um, but I also helped six other families, personal clients of mine, professional clients of mine, um, lost their loved ones and I helped them settle their estates. And I noticed that there was a pattern when I was on this retreat, I was thinking about all these circumstances and, and I realized Trevin that, mm, everybody think that thinks that retirement is just going to be a honeymoon. 
and I truly hope it is for all of them, but what I've realized is most people are horribly underprepared for the reality of what faces them when they leave work. And I remember before my mother passed away, and this is, I think, what put me over the edge to inspire me to write this book, The Retirement Dream Maker, Master the Art of Retirement Abundance, was I was um, uh, enrolling a new client into our firm, into our wealth management firm, and I said, oh my gosh, we'll just call him Bob. Oh my gosh, Bob, like two more years, buddy, and you're going to be able to retire. Like, we got this. This is awesome. I said, what are you going to do? And he just looked at me. And then he looked out into the window and then he looked back at me and he goes, I have no idea. And I go, what? And he just took a deep breath and he goes, I've never, I never thought I would make it this far. I said, Bob, like, let me take you back to third grade. When you were sitting in third grade and you didn't want to be in that desk, what were you thinking about when you were looking out the window? And he was like, I was thinking about fishing. I'm like, dude. You need to start fishing. Let's get you some magazines. Let's get you interested. Let's get you going. Bob is just one of millions that think that hunt, that retirement is just buying a muscle car, doing picnics with their grandkids. Uh-uh. And so I learned that there was some common pitfalls that people fell into in retirement after the honeymoon wore off. And um, when I was down in uh, at this networking event in Mexico, uh, when I was having a chat with Dr. Nita Bouchan, she said, you know what, Matt, you are an inspiring character. You've recently been through a lot of pain. Uh, how, how is it that you think you can help people? And I said, I don't know. I said, uh, I don't want to have people go through the same problems in retirement. That's when they should, that's when they should be in their golden years. That's when I believe people, when they leave work, that's when they have the most value because at no further point in time in their life should their professional skills be sharper. Mm -hmm. They will never have more money in their life mm -hmm. at the time that they, when they retire, typically, right? And time freedom. They have all the time that they want to do to follow their passion, right? I call it the triangle of success. You have it all. Right. But unfortunately, our society says you're no good. Right. You're 65, put them out to pasture. We don't value their opinion. I think that's a horrible mistake. It's one of the things that resonated with me and you when we were just riffing about what we wanted to do with the CBA, which was we want to make sure that we honor the people that come before us. And we really don't expect them to spend the time to mentor. However, we do need them yes. to pass on what they've done to blaze the trail for all of us right to help us pick up the torch and carry it right yeah for sure so that that whole experience working with my clients i think you know you asked when we first started this interview you know how what was it what were the skills you learned to kind of lay the foundation with what you're trying to do with the cba and what we are trying to do with the magazine and the website and it's all these experiences all the pain all the disappointment all of the grit all of the determination and vision all of the doubt all of that stuff goes into what we're doing right now all of the success all of the hard work and so um, from 2016 to 2017, it almost took me a year to get that book all the way done. I wrote it traditionally on a computer and I spent six months writing it here in Colorado. I wrote about 25,000 words here because I'm trying to write it while I'm running my practice, right. being a wealth manager, right? Like yeah, family time, family yeah, time. Exactly. I got into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in mm -hmm. 2010 and trained five days a week for an hour and a half every day for eight years mm -hmm. still trained to this day how do you do it all right and so you know Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu taught me a lot about focus and being very comfortable in uncomfortable situations right. and you know that as a wrestler mm, for sure you have to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations and writing that book was very uncomfortable trying to do it all here in Colorado. So we got a little life hack going. Uh, my writing coach said, you know, Matt, uh, you haven't stalled out on writing your book, but what do you think about doing a, a writing retreat 
and meeting Ajit and I with your family, your wife and your daughter, in Thailand. And we said, well, when do you want to go? And she said, oh, in about 40 days, can you make it? And I said, Victoria, you think you want to go to Thailand for 30 days? And she goes, oh, no, originally I said, do you, do you want to go to Thailand for a week so I can finish my book? And she says, nope, I'm not going halfway around. It's literally halfway around right. the globe. No matter if you go through Dubai or if you go, right, <laughs> go through yeah. Hawaii. And um, she says, I'm not going for a week. And I said, well, then let's go for two weeks. So she looked at flights and they're like $7,000 a ticket for two weeks. And I said, that's a little bit extreme. How about if I just go on my own? I'm sorry, but you know, we've already invested a lot of money writing this book because you can't, you know, do it for free. And, uh, she, and so she did some more sleuthing and she found that if we went for 30 days, we could do it for like $7,000 for all three of us as far as the ticket. And so off we went. 40 days, we went on a 30 day adventure to Thailand. Didn't know one thing about the language, the culture, nothing. We literally read about it on the plane. And one of the things, my wife and I and daughter are pretty well traveled um, to other places. And one of the favorite things that we like to do to stay out of trouble is you hop on YouTube and you uh, look up the 10 worst scams you can experience in whatever place you're visiting. And we avoided all 10 of them. Every, uh, everything that we read what about. What were some of them? Uh, this is one that I almost fell for. So we were going to the Royal Palace where the king, and the king had passed away about three to four months earlier. And Thailand was a whole nation in mourning. They love their their monarch. And he is a very good man, was a very good man. Right. They adored him. So we wanted to go see the palace. And if you've never seen a photo of the royal palace in and in uh, Thailand, it, words and pictures will never do it justice. It is literally, I'll probably have the dimensions wrong, but you know, a mile by you know mile squared of two to three story buildings, all covered in one inch mosaics, head to toe, inside and out. It is breathtaking. So we were on our way there. And um, the walls, you know, there's, they were built like, you know, five, six, seven hundred years ago. And they're 20 feet tall and they're super thick. And you got to walk, you know, forever to get around one side. And I'm really wanting to hustle because it's getting hot in Thailand. It's usually right. like 100 every day. Is it humid? Oh, yeah. Like, so it's hot and humid. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's unbearable. And so one of the scams is on one of the back service entrances, They'll usually leave those open and a local will be like, you know, hey, come on over here and you can get in, you know, much quicker. And they try to make you pay it, uh, you know, some money, some bot to get in. And then what they're letting you into is like a back service road and you'll get kicked out or you'll get arrested. <laughs> so this guy flags me down from across the road and <laughs> I go walking over there. He's like, come on in, come on in. And uh, my wife and daughter start following. And then a palace guard starts coming, thankfully. And the guy starts getting nervous. He's like, give me some money and you'll get in. And Ava's like, dad, that's a total scam. <laughs> My 10 year old at the time, that's a total scam, dad, don't do it. And the palace guard comes walking up, walking up and the dude heard my daughter and just turned tail and ran. <laughs> I almost fell for an Oakline seeker. But, but you didn't. But I didn't. Good. Actually, Ava didn't. Right. And Ava is about Aver- my Avery's age. She's 15. Ava's. She'll be 15. She'll here be soon. 15. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're about the same age. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an amazing experience. 30 days in Thailand. Not and did you get. Thai. So did you just like rent a place uh, or a motel or hostel? Where did you guys stay? So we spent the last 10 days in Rawai, which is uh, is the southern end of Phuket, which is the western side of of the kind of the finger of Thailand. So here's how the trip went. We landed in Bangkok, had no idea what we were supposed to do. Um, got a taxi at like 1130 at night who drove us into Bangkok. It's like completely empty. We're like, what is going on here? How do we even know where we're going? We're trying to use Google Maps. This guy speaks no English. We speak no Thai. We find we get there, no problem, like no problem. We were amazed, and we spent seven days in Bangkok. Amazing, people were so friendly. Being a martial artist, I'm always on alert. 
um, Thailand, some parts are known horribly for sex trafficking. So right. anywhere we travel outside, even in the US, like my daughter's close right. within arm's reach of me and my wife. There in Thailand, no matter the time of day or night we were there, I never felt unsafe once. Anywhere wow. we went in the entire country. It was, they call it the land of 10,000 10, smiles. Truly it was. So we spent seven days in Bangkok and then we f hopped on a plane, flew three hours north to Chiang Mai. And we spent seven days in Chiang Mai where we toured around like their old city, saw all of their old wats, which are all their old temples and chambers in jujitsu there. Um, did you do any kickboxing? I did not do any Muay Thai. Because I know a lot of, a lot of uh, MMA fighters now are, because it's so cheap to go there, they're going and training for like two, three months and just training Muay thai. their Muay Thai. Mm -hmm. And then like using it as a springboard to their camp for their fights. You but, got it. Mm -hmm. Best Muay Thai fighters are right there. They're not um, big, powerful guys, but they're so fast and they're so technical. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. So I trained at the Monsoon Gym uh, in Koh Tao, which was our next stop. Um, and I also trained in Chiang Mai, uh, at the Chiang Mai Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy there, which was fantastic. One of the coolest things that we did in Chiang Mai uh, which we went to an elephant sanctuary and got to spend the day touching, walking, feeding, bathing, like in the river with full grown adult size elephants. It was the most amazing wow. thing I've ever done. So cool. Of course you can't ride them. It's not, you know, that's, there are places that, um, allow you to ride elephants in Thailand, but they do not encourage like the people who love animals do not encourage it usually yeah. those animals are abused and rescued wills, kind of mm, that'd be putting it gently yeah yeah but the ones that we got to spend the time with at the sanctuary those were rescued from logging right. or maybe right. they stepped on a landmine or they've gotten a um you know brace on their on their leg or something but that was a pretty amazing experience so um so we spent seven days there then we went to chain uh Koh Samoy, which was Wait. a how many words have you written so far? None. So, okay. Okay. I'm just trying to try your tour. Right. So you're taking the, the first part of the trip really just to decompress yep. family time, see, make a memory. Okay. Gotcha. Exactly. We wanted to spend, uh, three weeks just doing really cool stuff together. The phones were off. Um, I worked, this is one of the things that's, uh, one of the skills I think I bring to the CBA is uh, while we were in Thailand, I got published twice, Fortune and Forbes, halfway across the globe. Right. I enrolled just as many clients when I was in Thailand, when I was in Colorado, right. because of technology. Right. I embraced the technology. Sure. I helped my clients to embrace it, not fear it. Right. right? When you frame it properly to people, so they can see it as a valuable tool with security, it's amazing what you can do. Yeah, sure, sure. Right? So that was a really cool thing. So um, I would work, you know, I, I'm an early riser. I'd get up at five and work from five to six, have my coffee there. And then at night, if I was, you know, awake and the girls were asleep, I'd do a couple emails. But um, other than that, like during the day, all computers were locked in the safe. The phones were in the safe. Uh, we just kept a copy of a passport. We went out there and, and had a really cool, had a really cool adventure met amazing people. Yeah. So we didn't do any hotels. How was the food? Um, $1.50 for some of the best food you'll yeah. ever eat. And, and did you find that you, you you stayed away from like, okay, this is a touristy place. We don't want to eat here. We want to eat here. Oh, yeah. yeah. we All yeah. authentic. So we yeah. did uh, VRBO the entire month oh, okay. because we wanted to have an authentic Thai experience. We shopped at the local markets. Um, mm -hmm. most of the people along the coasts do speak some English enough to get by. And of course we picked things up. Um, we're, we're seekers, you know, we're interested in learning other people's languages and stuff. And when you're here for 20 days, you pick things up. You can't help but pick you a few can't. things up, right? But I will share with you a funny story. When I was in Chiang Mai doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu with uh, all the, the fellas there, um, I remember it was raining super, super hard. And the fellow who, who owns the academy, he says, uh, <laughs> this is pretty funny. He says, uh, hey, man, I heard you trying to speak some Thai there in the, in the gym. And I said, just a few things, man. He goes, don't even bother. He's an American. 
And I said, why? He goes, buddy, I've been here for 15 years. I've been dating a Thai woman for five years. He goes, do you want to know what the, the Thai word for horse is? I said, what? He said, ka. And he said, you want to know what the, the Thai word for come is? Like, come here? He said, ka. You want to know what the Thai word is for get out of here? Ka. And then he said one other, ka. And he goes, and so I'm speaking Thai with his family and there was a horse behind them. And so I said, hey, look at the horse. And I said, ka. But because I didn't do it perfect, they're all like running the opposite way, thinking I was telling them to do something. He's like, don't even bother. It is a very difficult language to learn. But yeah. we picked some things up to yeah. have some fun with. Yeah. Got my first pedicure from a, a lady boy there in Thailand. Mm. That was smooth as a baby's bottom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, my wife and my daughter sprung that on me. <laughs> it was uh, interesting. Um, but the people there in Thailand were amazing. $7 massages every day. The entire family. Just great. Yeah. Awesome. And it's part of their culture there. Right. It is part of the, They all do it. It's part of the culture. And honestly, thinking back on it, Trevin, I wonder if that isn't one of the contributing things that makes their culture pretty gentle, is that they're not afraid to touch each other. Hmm. I know in China, when I was in China, um, it's part of the culture there, too. And I actually found a guy, you know, Chinese people, Asian descent, whatever you want to say, tend to be smaller in stature. Mm -hmm. And... I went into a place because I was just, I, I don't know, I, I just needed a massage. I was really tight. I was younger, um, much younger. I was in my uh, early 20s. And there's this humongous buff. I mean, not like fat. I'm talking ripped. Like, here, here's a normal Chinese man who I look big compared to. My little brother's six foot three. He's a giant, right? Well, there's this guy. He's probably six foot one, 250, ripped. But he's a mute. He doesn't, he can't talk. He has, I don't know, something with his tongue. But he was a masseuse. I went back to him three times. <laughs> he, the best, I think it was like four bucks, right? The best mm -hmm. massage I've ever had in my life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it is. I think it's a cultural thing. Yep. Yeah, that, uh, there's a lot of things we probably could learn from some of that cultural stuff, the way they interact. And respect yeah. their their elders. Oh, they have yeah. a deep respect for their elders. Yeah. Their their younger population is very respectful. They're very gentle. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a way of life for them. It's no joke. So you get three quarters of the way through your trip, then you go... Where did you go? Where you? We flew to Phuket and spent the last and, ten days and, in Rawai. Right, and so we got a a nice like two thousand square foot flat with its own pool and private drive for like a hundred and fifty dollars a night, uh, half a mile from the, one of the most beautiful beaches in Thailand. And uh, while the girls were out playing every day, I wrote my book, and did twenty seven or twenty eight thousand words in like seven days, uh, and. Um, Ajit wrote uh, number one bestseller at the same time as I did. And then uh, Dr. Anita Bhushan, she just kind of guided us through the process and helped pull out all the good stuff. And it was amazing when you isolate yourself and you have the right intention of just doing nothing but serving people, getting the information from your mind through your fingertips onto the keyboard in the way that helps the most people possible, how that information just flew right out of me. Wow. No problem. I would write from the time we would start till we broke to from the time till we start till we ended the day. No problem. Effortless. It just came. Just came right out of that. I find that when I write, um, like I just finished my moose article and um, the hardest part is getting started for me. And then when I get in a flow, it's, it's kind of like editing though, too. I find it with editing though. I kind of know what my raw materials are with writing. It's a blank page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can, I mean, there's, the the possibilities are literally endless. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I find that as I get rolling, and I don't know it, it, in that type of a writing if you do the same, but you, you get going and you're like, the next thing you know, you look at your, at your watch and it's two hours or, or four hours. And you're like, 
oh, I got to eat something or, you know, hey, I got to go do this. And you're like, but you, it's almost like when you're reading a book, how you're like, oh, I don't want to put it down. Right. But writing, you get that same. I call it a writer's high. It is. And one of the, the skills that I hope to bring to the CBA and represent well is. Um, Matt just handed me his book. This is. Awesome. I brought you your own copy. It's in my truck. Oh, sweet, dude. Yeah. So one of the skills that I hope to bring to the CBA was what Dr. Bouchon taught me was that with this type of writing, um, my book, uh, a third of it is about personal finance. So to help people understand what it really means to work with a fiduciary when it comes to financial advising or to estate planning and what to look out for to make sure that you're making the right decision. I wrote that book, so if somebody in Atlanta or New York or uh, uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico got it, they could go to their local community of resources and find the right person for them. I do not lead them back to me at all. Gotcha. And then the last two thirds is how to fill, how to live a life without regret. How. I encountered a study as I was researching this book and was thinking about the message that I wanted to communicate. And there was a study done by a gal by the name of Bronnie Ware. And she was a palliative caregiver, end of life caregiver. And she put together uh, a collection of interviews of people that she had worked with at the end of their life. And like me, when I thought there was a central theme of having settled six estates and watching my mother pass and other people in my family, um, that there was a common theme amongst them. And she articulated it way better than me, which was she realized that the number one regret in people's lives at the end of their life was that they didn't have the courage to live their life true to themselves. Hmm. They lived it for their son. They lived it for their daughter. They didn't go for something that they were passionate about because they were worried about what other people would say. They were, they were waiting for a milestone. I'll do this with my grandparents when they get to do this. Or I can't go out there and run a marathon at 75 because my kids will think I'm crazy. Or I can't take up archery as a woman because I'm supposed to be a grandma, right? Mm -hmm. Those types of dogmatic you know, status quo is what gets people into these ruts in retirement. And so I wrote an outline for folks on what they should be avoiding. And this would apply, Trevin, to even anybody's life. Anybody's life. And here's what it really comes down to. I encourage people who are retired to find meaning to get up every day to have a sense of responsibility to their community. So they have value to their community. That's what keeps good people alive. And you know, somebody who we know very closely that inspires me a ton, Paul Navarre. Mm. That guy, since we started archery together, 2002, 2003, he's been there. Always. And he's a guy from day one I recognize, I wanna be like that guy. And he's 80. And he's doing it. Hammering it. Still. Respect. Yeah. Oh, no. No, you got Marv Clinky. You've got, I mean, the CBA, you talk about guys that are giants of role model, giant role models, if that's, if that makes sense. Yeah. We've got a ton of them. Mm -hmm. We've got a ton of them. How do we replicate that? We have to honor those people and they have so much information, you know, the skills that they used as bow hunters in the sixties and seventies and eighties are ones that may have been forgotten and certainly are not obsolete today. For sure. And I owe a debt of gratitude to all the people that have ever volunteered at the CBA because they make it possible for the CBA to have big eight, big nine, big 10 first time award winners. An annual banquet, a jamboree shoot. I mean, that sense of community is what I relate to in the book. And thinking back on it, the CBA is a perfect example on how people can find meaning in their life. Look at how many members that we have that are retired and they're passionate about Colorado, wildlife, yeah. nature, environment. 
animals, clean air, clean water. Those are the people I really feel that we should be picking up the torch with and running to a whole nother destination past, right? We can carry that torch. Right. And that, you know, that experience, that structure of writing that book, I think um, are valuable tools that I can bring to the CBA because when you have a solidified message and you have a methodical approach to be able to walk the reader through your message, to get them engaged, uh, that is certainly much better than just putting random thoughts out on a page when you're excited. Right. Right. I when I write, um, and I and I don't do adventure writing. I used to, when we were shooting bows. I you know I wanted to be a published writer, not as in a not as a profession, but it, that's another challenge. Right. Could I did I do it good enough to get in a magazine? Like right. just doing it wasn't enough for me. Like right. I'm a motorhead. Right. Can I get it published? Right. I was reading stories of Tony Mudd and all his adventures, horseback in Alaska back mm -hmm. in the day. He was on a roll. Yeah. And he inspired me to like, you know, Tony, and other people Tony's too. Tony's a stinking stud. <laughs> so so I want to take a step back now. Explain to the to the listeners, because I know what happened, and then I'll jump in here where, where my part comes in. But explain how you went from okay, you're, you've been a member of CBA, you've got, still hunting kind of in the peripheral and still loving it, but the, then all of a sudden here you are, the editor <laughs> of, and a, and a board member now of the CBA. T t let, let's fill in those gaps. We're gonna pause right here. This is actually a long, longer po podcast than we normally do, so I'm gonna take a break. This is going to be the end of the first part of this podcast with Matt Jackson. Make sure you catch the next one, and we'll continue this conversation, most importantly, about who Matt is, what we're doing, and the CBA. So we'll talk to you guys later. God bless, and we'll see you down the trail.